As I mentioned, the believers to whom Peter was writing in this first letter were being treated unfairly. They were suffering unjustly. They were suffering for doing what is right. And God's word is filled with examples of men and women who suffered unjustly. They didn't deserve it. It wasn't their fault. That's been a theme. Zelo Ashmati, it's not my fault. We keep coming back to that. David, as a young shepherd boy, killed Goliath and helped rout the Philistine army. After that, David became overwhelmingly popular among the people, and he also became the object of King Saul's rage. David had done only good for his people, only good for Saul. Therefore, the people appropriately sang their praises to David. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And this popular song among the people sent Saul into a rage, a revengeful rage against the young hero. And for over a decade, Saul pursued David. David ran for his life, and Saul hunted him and haunted him and wanted to hurt him. David didn't deserve this, but it happened. Joseph didn't ask to be his father's favorite, but when Jacob showed favoritism to his youngest son, Joseph's brothers, in a moment of absolute hatred, sold him into slavery. After one of the brothers talked the rest of the brothers out of killing him, and although Joseph triumphed over his circumstances, he was initially ripped off big time by his brothers. Earlier, Joseph's father, Jacob, had cheated his own brother Esau out of his birthright. Immediately, uh, admittedly, Esau was rash, he was irresponsible, but Jacob took advantage of his brother at a vulnerable moment. And what about the good man, Job? What about Job? According to the scriptures, he was blameless and upright and had taken unfair advantage of no one. But because Satan used him as a guinea pig, Job lost all his land, all his servants, all his possessions, and above all, his ten children. Now, while God ultimately used all these circumstances, circumstances for these believers' good and for his honor, initially all of these men could have said, and some of them did, what is happening here? This is unfair. I don't deserve this. Ever been there? We all have. Chuck Swindoll says that it's his observation that when we are treated unfairly, we tend to respond with what he calls three common knee-jerk reactions. This is our first reaction to it. First, he says there's the aggressive pattern. The aggressive pattern is when we blame others for our circumstances and what's going on. And this reaction not only focuses on the person who ripped us off, but we begin to keep a running tally of all the things that have been done against us, especially by this person. We start to engineer ways that we're going to get back. And the reaction says, I don't just get mad, I get even. And in this process, the aggression grows from simple anger all the way to rage. It can be anger. Uh, it starts with a seed of resentment that generates into revenge. And in the process, we have a deep down, deep root of bitterness that eventually wraps around our souls and our hearts. And if allowed to grow to full size, it leaves us determined to get back at every person who might have, have done us wrong. Chuck Swindoll says, it's like the fellow who was bitten by a dog and was later told by his physician, 
Yes, indeed, you do have rabies. And immediately the man took out a pad and a pencil and started writing down some things. And thinking that the man was making his will, the doctor said, listen, this doesn't mean you're going to die. There's a cure for rabies. He says, I know that. I'm making a list of people I'm going to bite. (laughs) That's the aggressive knee-jerk reaction to unfair treatment. Secondly, there's a passive knee-jerk reaction. This is where we feel sorry for ourselves. We throw a pity party. We complain to anyone who will listen to what we have to say, who will lend a sympathetic ear. Life isn't fair, we whine. And if we wallow in this uh, slew of despondency long enough, we become depressed, we become immobile. Living living the balance of our life with the shades of our lives drawn, with our, our hearts locked off to other people. We don't want to get close to people. We don't want to be vulnerable again like quickstand. We, we feel sorry for ourselves. And, and in this even, we're still holding back a lot of, of anger in this passive pattern as well. And when we give in to this temptation, we become determined that we will not be vulnerable to anybody else ever again. And in this regard, Chuck Swindoll tells one of his all-time favorite stories. He says that it reminds him of some fellows in the military who were stationed in Korea during the Korean War. And while there, they hired a local boy to be their houseboy to cook and clean for them. And and these soldiers, being a bunch of jokesters, they they soon took advantage of the boy uh, in his seemingly naivete. They'd smear Vaseline on the handles on the stove, so when he would go turn on the stove in the morning, it would feel greasy. They'd put water buckets above the door, little water buckets, so when he opened the door, the water would fall on him. He'd be deluged by the water. Uh, They'd even nail his shoes to the floor during the night. And day after day, the little fellow took the brunt of their practical jokes without saying anything about it. No blame, no pity party. No temper tantrum. And then one Christmas season, these men started feeling very guilty about what they were doing. So they sat down with the young Korean and said, Look, we know these pranks aren't funny anymore, and we're sorry. We're never going to take advantage of you again. It seemed too good to be true to the houseboy. No more sticky on stove, he said. No, no more sticky on stove. No more water on door. No, no more water on door. No more nail shoes to the floor? Nope, never again. Okay, the boy said with a smile, no more spit in soup. (laughs) Even in the passive regard, we can still spit in somebody's soup, can't we? And I'm not going to explain this the way Chuck Swindoll did, because he can get very graphic when he tells that story. When we are suffered and treated unfairly, there can be that, that holding pattern as well. We postpone our feelings. This is the third way that we often react to unfair suffering. We might call it the Scarlet O'Hare syndrome. I think, or I'll, I'll think about that tomorrow. I'll just put it off. I'll postpone. And, and everything still continues to boil, to simmer on a back burner at a low flame and On the surface, it seems calm. Oh, that that doesn't bother me, but underneath there are feelings that that seethe, cutting away at us just like acid. The failure to deal with the problems forthrightly 
only leads to doubt, to disillusionment. It weakens the fiber of our lives. When Peter tells believers how to respond to unfair suffering and how to respond to suffering even when we do what is right, we don't find him advocating any of these kind of knee-jerk reactions at all. But we do find him commanding us to do something that brings God honor, something that glorifies God, and we find him commanding us to do something in which our godly influence on those around us, including those who might mistreat us, is, is for a godly purpose. He shows us that our godly response to suffering and mistreatment is the source of our greatest potential influence in the world and on those around us. That is, if we truly want to make a difference for Jesus Christ and his kingdom, if we truly want to impact our nation, our community, our neighbors, the people we know with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will be born out of our own suffering. It will be born out of the unjust treatment against us. And it's all tied up in the first five words of 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. For example, he's been talking about in verse 12, why do we submit to being slandered by unbelievers? Because according to verse 12 of the second chapter, it brings glory to God. Why do we submit to the government? He's going to say, it's for the Lord's sake and it is the will of God. Last week I had you circle the words in your Bible that had to do with suffering in Peter's first letter. Some 13 times we, we suffered that circling. And uh, this week we're going to circle the words that have to do with submission. Beginning with verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit. Circle that word submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to as a king, as the one in authority, Submit yourselves. Go down to verse 18. It says, servants, be submissive. Circle the word submissive. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Go over to chapter 3 at verse 1. The favorite in many households. In the same way, you wives, be submissive. Circle the word submissive. To your own husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. And they'll go down to verse 5. For in this way in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive. There's the word again. Submissive to their own husbands. In our relationships to the governmental authorities, we are to be submissive. In our relationships, in our work, to our employers, we are to be submissive. In our family relationships, we are to be submissive. As we see in Paul's letters, in the church, we are submit to submit one to another, submit ourselves to one another. Home, community, church, government, the overarching duty of the Christian is to be submissive. Submissiveness or submission is not only the key to our influence or impact, we have in the world and in our community for Jesus Christ, but it's also a key attribute in all of our relationships. Now, the Greek word translated submit or be subject, depending on your translation, is hupotasso. Hupotasso. It comes from two Greek words, hupo, which means under, 
and tasso, which means to place or to arrange. Hupo tasso. It means to place or to arrange under. And the ancient Greeks used it as a military term. In the military sense, the word hupotasso means to rank under or to rank beneath. The word was not strictly limited to military use, but its military meaning illustrates to us, it gives us a good example of what it means as Christians to rank ourselves one another, under one another and to rank ourselves under others as well. And so the military analogy works pretty well to give us an understanding of submission. In the 4th century before Christ, Alexander the Great, by the age of 30, had conquered the known world. Alexander never lost a battle. He never knew defeat in battle. Out of discouragement, he gave up at one time because his men were getting tired. They hadn't been home for seven years. And uh, they got to India, and having defeated the war elephants, which they'd never seen in their whole lives, but suffering some casualties, he was told about this great land called China beyond. And he goes, we, we just can't go there. But Alexander had never lost a battle. He'd never been defeated in battle. He even defeated the feared Persians under Darius III, where Darius had earlier defeated Alexander's great father, Philip of Macedon. The noun form of hupotasso, submission, is hupotoxis. And hupotoxis was the key to every one of Alexander's victories. Hupotoxis refers to the taking of a position in the phalanx of a military unit. Alexander conquered the world with the phalanx in Hupotoxis. Now, phalanx is a body of heavenly armed infantry in ancient Greece that are formed in deep ranks and files. And the soldiers would form in close formation and they fought in a wedged formation with heavenly armed hoplites on the side. They're the ones that had those long spears and the big, big shields. And protected in the middle of the phalanx were archers. These were the lightly armed guys. And there were skirmishers. You know, they, they were quick because they didn't have armor and, and those kind of things. They didn't even have shields for their own protections. And when the opposing army did break through the front line... The quick and accurate archers and skirmishers would finish those guys off. Oftentimes, Alexander had it planned for the chariots to come through, as he did with Darius. And so the chariots just came, the line opened up, and then the line closed up, and the chariots were taken captive behind enemy lines. Now, Alexander had no navy to speak of, even though Darius had the greatest navy in the history of the world up to that time. Alexander had no chariots. He had no war elephants, he had very few horses, and he never lost a battle. Why? Because every one of his troops was in hupotoxis. They were in submission to one another. Every one of his troops was where they were supposed to be doing what they had been trained to be, to do. They were positioned in hupotoxis. Now what if the archer said, you know, I'm tired and frustrated with my life, and how this is going for me. Why don't I go over there and do that thing? I'm going to assert my rights and get down there with the heavily armed and shielded hoplites. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with those guys, and he would be chariot fodder in a flesh. And not only that, probably the whole line would cave in at that point, and maybe the whole army 
could be defeated. Just because one guy decided, I'm going to assert my rights, and I'm not going to do that. Every one of the troops, including the generals, every officer, the heavily armed hoplites, the archers, the skirmishers, even the cook and the latrine diggers, were in Hupo Tassus. Alexander the Great admitted an army travels on its stomach. Well, if the cook refused to submit and didn't fix the meal for the long march, it doesn't mean that the cook is a lesser man than the general or not as important as the hoplite. He might be more important to a particular hoplite in a particular uh, time or place. But structure and submission to the structure is necessary for victory. In a practical sense, hupotasso means voluntarily be where you are supposed to be doing what you are supposed to be doing. If we were to put that in Christian terms, submission means to the Christian voluntarily be where God has made you to be and prepared you to be and trained you to be and called you to be doing what he wants you to do. That is submission. In the marriage relationship that we'll talk about in the coming weeks when we get to the third chapter of 1 Peter, we'll see that the structure of hupotasis, submission, is necessary if the Christian family, if any Christian family, is going to be able to stand against the attacks of the enemy, of the evil one. Basically, in marriage, the, spirit, the partner's spiritual natures are exactly the same. There is no male or female in Christ Jesus. Male and female, our positions are equal before God. Men are not better spiritually than women or, or superior in some way. But in order for the family to function, in order for the family to withstand the attacks of the enemy, which there are many, especially in our culture, to withstand the, the onslaught of the enemy from without and to with, withstand the, the things from within, the members of the family must be in hupotoxis must be in submission. Husbands must be in hupotoxis. Wives must be in hupotoxis. Children must be in hupotoxis. And when we brought it beyond the family to the workplace, employers must be in hupotoxis. Employees must be in hupotoxis. In the church, we are told that leaders are to be in hupotoxis. As Paul says, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Submission means voluntarily with a humble spirit, I'm going to be where God has called and trained and made me to be and doing what he wants me to do. Well, we've seen some of the whys. Why do we need to submit? We need to submit to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. We need to submit to maintain our effectiveness and our influence in the kingdom of God. And Peter gives us a whole list of, of three or four other reasons that we are to submit to authority. So we find the first one in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For the Lord's sake, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Now this recognition of existing authority coupled with a willingness to set aside one's own personal desires shows that we need a deep dependency upon, upon God. The submission to authority is not only in respect to God, but he gives us a whole list of, of authorities here. The foremost authority, and to also as, as the king, or we'd say the president, uh, to Congress, to lesser officials as well, as well. Uh, governors, our own law enforcement officers, teachers, 
anyone in authority over us. Now, if we were good students of submission, quite frankly, we'd get along better in life. But it's also true that it's the one thing more than any other that works against our very nature. Our own nature argues, I don't want to submit. I don't want to give in on this one. I'll give in on the the next one. I'm not going to let him have his way on this one. And so we live abrasively. So we need something to be very clear here. Our problem is not so much understanding what submission is. I think the Bible makes that very clear. Our problem is often doing what it says. Because our nature and everything else goes against it. Because submission is so difficult, we need to look at the reasons behind Peter's command here. What is the main reason behind Peter's command? He says, for the Lord's sake. Why do we do it? For the Lord's sake. What it says literally is because of the Lord. Because of the Lord. For the Lord's sake. Because it's the way you honor him, it's the way you respond to him. How is that? Peter gives us several ways. First of all, we submit ourselves for the Lord's sake because to submit yourself, or he asks us or commands us to submit ourselves. In other words, he demands it. You are doing in obedience to him, to obey him. Turn over to the, the book of Romans for a minute, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. A passage that is very much parallel here where Paul is saying the, the same thing as, as, as Peter. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection or to be submissive to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Whoever wins the majority of the votes (laughs) in the second Tuesday in November this year is established by God. Daniel the prophet stood before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had said, off with their heads to the whole lot of them because they could not interpret the dream. Daniel says, I can interpret the dream. He goes and stands before Nebuchadnezzar the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time, who's already threatened to kill him because Daniel was one of the wise men uh, who couldn't supposedly interpret the dream. And Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord establishes and removes the kings of the earth. Verse 2 of Romans 13, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Since there's no authority except from God, and those authorities which exist are all established by God, when you respond submissively to the authority, you are doing so for the Lord's sake, who instituted the authority. When a leader in this society says, do this, you do it. When the police say, get up and move over here, You get up and move over there because that's what the Bible tells you to do. Why do you do it? Because of the Lord. Because of the Lord, why? Because the Lord has called us to obey the authorities. Because the authorities are ordained by God and it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. It's really that that simple. We are obeying what God has said we are supposed to do. 
and somebody comes along with their own agenda, and we see it played out on the news every night of the week. They, they come along. Someone comes along and says, well, how are we going to accomplish our goal if we obey the police? We see it every night. Are we so foolish to believe that if we disobey the police, which, disobey the, which disobeys the word of God, we can accomplish anything for the kingdom of God? What kind of weapons do we want to use? Carnal ones, like are being used all the time? But you see, typically we fall weakly into one of those kinds of things. You do not accomplish in society anything for God when you violate what God has designed for your conduct in society. That is to stoop to the wrong methodology. We don't want to fall into the ends justify the means because the end can never be attained because who's in charge of the end? God is always in charge of the end. So responding submissively to the authorities, responding to God's ordained rule. Now, if questions are running through your mind, next week we're going to start talking about some of those things when we obey God rather than, than men because there are some instances. But Robert Culver, writing in his book, it's a very helpful book on a biblical view of civil government, says, God alone has sovereign rights. Democratic theory is no less unscriptural than divine right monarchy. By whatever means men come to positions of rulership, by dynastic descent, aristocratic family connection, plutocratic material resources, those are ways that men have come to, to power all through the centuries, or by democratic election, there is no power but of God. Furthermore, civil government is an instrument, not an end. Men are proximate ends, but only God is ultimate end. The state owns neither its citizens nor their properties, minds, bodies, or children. All these belong to their creator, God, who has never given to the state rights of eminent domain. What we need to understand is that God controls and owns it all. And what he wants to do is recognize that he has ordained government to keep peace in society, to bear the sword, as, as, uh, as Paul said it in, in Romans, for the punishment of evildoers, as, as Peter has said it here. And secondly, we submit ourselves to the Lord's sake because of the, the will of God, the will of God. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The whole point of this section of exhortation by Peter is that Christians are to live in such a way, we are to live with such exemplary lives that it stops the mouths of those who criticize our faith. God has willed that we silence the critics by doing good, not by opposing authority. Now, the word translated silence in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 is a great word because literally it means to muzzle, that we muzzle the ignorance of foolish men. It's a picture of the pagan critics yelping and snapping like a pack of dogs, and our submission muzzles them. I know what that feels like because I was walking to church one Sunday morning in Elko, Nevada, like to walk to the church when it was sunshiny and those kind of things and go down to the church early on a Sunday morning. And just as you went over the footbridge and got into the other part of town, uh, there was a whole block where the phone company building was a whole block long. And it was just one long blank wall right next to the sidewalk. 
that was literally 300 feet long, a whole, a whole city block. And I'd walk on that sidewalk next to that blank wall, and I got about halfway down the wall, and a group uh, or a pack of snarling, barking dogs came around the corner. And they backed me up against that wall, and I had my back against the wall, literally. And I had no place to go. It was 150 feet this way, 150 feet that way. You know, and they were you know, going like that and smarling, so I were crouching and those kind of things. And as I was praying without ceasing... <laughs> A police car came around the corner, and they saw my predicament, and he sped up a little bit, kind of gunned it slightly, and that caused the dogs to, to take off, and then one of them rolled down the window and said, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine, I, no, no problem. And they said, well, we're going to follow these dogs and see if we can find out where they live or, or where they are from, because they were literally a, literally a wild pack of dogs. And Paul uses this idea of a snarling pack of dogs to show us what we are up against spiritually, what we are up against politically in our world. And he tells us that the way to muzzle these critics, the way to take care of this snarling pack of dogs, is to live a life that's above criticism. Live, out, live a life that's above reproach, a life that is above shame. Now, next Sunday, we're going to look at several examples from history that show how we live as Christians is the greatest apologetic, the greatest defense for the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, in the third century, Tertullian argued that the persecuted Christians were, in fact, the very best citizens that Rome had. Not only on account of their care and love for one another, but because of their care and love for those that the pagans and the government often neglected. Because, and because they honored the king. There's really no greater way for people to see the transforming power of the gospel than to see a life that has been transformed by the gospel. It's the foundation of all of our witness. The powerful witness comes when a person gives someone the gospel has already laid the foundation of having shown that person a transformed life. So we submit for the Lord's sake because God demands it. We do it in obedience to him. We submit for the Lord's sake because it is the will of God. And we submit to the Lord's sake because we are bond slaves of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Now, this might be the hardest reason of all because it comes down to our attitude. Our attitude. Act as free men. What a statement. You know, after three or four hundred years of, uh, of being American citizens and colonists and those kind of things. You know, we love our freedom. We, we enjoy our freedom, but we kind of get used to that word freedom, don't we? Act as free men. Peter wrote this at a time where over half of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Over half were slaves. Now, they weren't all menial slaves. Some of them were doctors, physicians, uh, businessmen, all kinds of things. But we need to remember, what does that mean to act as free men? This is great. As, as believers, we are free from the world. We've been freed from Satan. We are not earthbound. You're free in Christ. He is saying you're free. And as, as I was thinking about this and reading about this, I kept thinking of Dr. Martin Luther King's 
Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. That's a wonderful thing. We've been freed by redemption. Jesus came to the auction block of sin and bought us. We have been paid with the price. And now we belong to him, now we belong to Jesus, but we were redeemed, set free by the precious blood of Christ. You're set free, I'm free. And we could look at all kinds of Bible passages that talk about this. Sure, we're free in Christ. We're free from sin. We're free from Satan. We're free from condemnation. We're free from the world. But Peter says, don't you dare use your freedom as a covering for evil. In other words, don't let liberty easily become license. And the idea here with covering is that of a mask or a covering, a veil that somebody put over their face. Don't put on the mask of freedom to cover up what is really something that is wickedness. In other words, Christian freedom is never to be used to cover up ungodly license or ungodly living or violating the law of God. Don't you put on some mask that says, well, now we're free in Christ. We're citizens of heaven. We're of another dimension. We're going, we can live apart from the law of, of man. We're above the laws of man, so we can really do what we want. That's merely a mask of freedom that's covering up evil. And evil springs out of vengeance, retaliation, bitterness, hostility, and disobedience. If you want to review your notes from the first, every one of those knee-jerk reactions, we have a tendency because we're free, I I have a right. I can feel the way I want to. I can do what I want to. And it all comes back to attitude, doesn't it? Just a few years ago, not that many years ago, there was a prevalent movement among Christians to get out of paying taxes by getting getting rid of their Social Security numbers. I'd get rid of my Social Security number, and now the IRS doesn't know who I am or where I live. I can do what I want. The rationalization was, well, I'm a Christian. I'm I'm not a citizen of this world, and I've been untreated... I've been treated unfairly by the IRS, everybody has, and if we can get enough people to do this, we can get back at them, and we can, can change things. And I, I could give you the address of a certain place, a certain so-called Christian ministry, where you could go and they would teach you how to get rid of your social security number and supposedly do all of this. And uh, one of the guys who tried this now, last time I heard about it, he has a $160,000 tax lien against his business. That's how it works. (laughs) He used the mask of freedom to do something that was was not right. And Jesus said, did he say don't pay your taxes? No, he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and render unto God that which is God's. And the attitude of the Christian who submits for the Lord's sake is summarized in verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Kind of sounds like one of those epic movies of Middle Ages times, doesn't it? Well, they, they, got that, they got that from Scripture. And that's where we're going to have to leave it this morning. Next time, we'll start getting into two things. I don't know how much we'll get into each one, but uh, at least next week we'll be uplifting examples from the Bible and from Christian history that show the godly influence of a godly people who have submitted for the Lord's sake the testimony of those who have gone before us when they've taken this seriously. And secondly, and maybe one of the biggest questions, and we'll be looking at that probably not next week but the week after, is when 
when is it in good conscience that we have to say, like Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, we choose to obey God rather than men? And we'll be looking at examples from the Bible and Christian history where God has honored that as well. And then, probably in two weeks' time, we're going to take a good look at what is our Christian responsibility in politics and in government. You know, what is the, the role of religion in government. So there's some good stuff coming up. So hopefully today we started answering some of the questions because I know there's still a lot that we have. And I think it's just God's good timing that we're talking about these things when, when we see it being played out on the TV every night of the week and what we read on Facebook go, whoa, did he really say that? <laughs> or, or not. So some good stuff coming up. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, because Peter has written these things to, to believers who are being treated unfairly and unjustly, even by the government, even by their neighbors and others that, that they knew, Lord, uh, you know, it's just, just a marvelous thing that uh, you would be even concerned about these things in your word, that you would show us how to live as the children of God, to live as a holy nation, a chosen people, for your own possession. Father, in all of this, help us not to forget who we are, who we are in Christ Jesus. And Father, in that, help us to, through your Holy Spirit, to have what it takes in this culture, in this world, amidst the government of which we are under. Father, to know how to live and to act in a way, Father, that will bring people to Jesus Christ. That they will see him as Savior and accept him by faith for the forgiveness of their sins. That the Lord, they would submit themselves, first of all, to you, Lord. And for this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen.